from Luke chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling, swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Praise God. Let me pray for us as we go into the word. Lord, thank you, God, for um, these glimpses of your grace, even from a few people. And, and Lord, I know for sure there is many more in this room. And um, Lord, we have to combat regularly this narrative that life transformation happens in an instant. And sometimes it does. But Lord, you remind us that part of being in a church and in a community is the long haul together. And help us as we commit to that, as we commit to your word. We pray for those who um, courageously even uh, stepped up here to share. Lord, we know that's not a small thing. Move in their lives, Lord. Continue to affirm to them that it was a good thing what they shared. That you're using that even in lives here that wouldn't have gotten that word. So, Lord, as we go into your scriptures, remind us of the life that's found there as it points to Jesus. And help us to cling to you as our hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Nancy, for that word. Um, if you uh, have not been here before, for the past few weeks, we're doing this series through the book of Luke chapter 2 called Revolution, uh, talking about how the entrance of Christ into our world erratically changed things, even if it wasn't apparent at the moment. And Pastor B and Pastor Larry, they preached the past two weeks um, and talking about how this, this message of Jesus coming in the form of this baby. We all know that. You don't even have to go to church to know that. But it was first introduced to this group of shepherds. And, and, and Pastor Larry last week really unpacked that for us. And, and, and this idea of what the, the message behind the message in some ways. I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. And as we look at this background of the shepherds here, and as Nancy right here, this will be a sign for you. This will be a sign for you. Who's he, who, who are they talking about? It's for the shepherds. And, and it's, it's, they're not there yet. They've heard, yo, you're going to go find this Messiah. You're going to go find this Jesus, this Christ. Here's how you're going to know, because you're going to go around looking for, looking for different sides. Here's how you're going to know this is the one. You're going to find him. It's going to be a baby. And he's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. And he's going to be lying in a manger. And that image, it's, it's meant to stand out, out to us as we see here. A, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger is the Christ child, is the Messiah, is the king who's come. And if you, if you look at different scholars uh, who study these things, they, there's some different ideas of what manger might be. Um, the word translated manger here, some also translate it um, as stables. So Mary conceivably could have given birth to Jesus in a setting where animals are cared for. Um, in which case, Jesus might have been laid in one of these feeding troughs. That might have been um, where he was sleeping. Or some other traditions say that Jesus, he wasn't born in some nice little shed that you find on, um, you know, in front of a church. But more, he, maybe it was like a cave. Because in those times, animals were often kept in caves. Or there's the possibility that maybe this birth actually didn't take place in a very private uh, setting at all, but rather in an open-air area, in the courtyard of an overpacked inn. 
that as they as they were looking for an inn, there was no space. Well, they got to sleep somewhere, so they stay in the courtyard. And thus, not much room for a nice private berth. So whatever the specific details might be, my point is, one thing seems pretty abundantly clear. This wasn't the romantic picture that we've seen depicted in so many front yard nativity scenes. Even if it's hipster version nowadays, right? It's not that cute little, like, romantic and every animal's doing what they're supposed to do and the people all got their butt. This simple statement at the end of verse 7 that we didn't read today but from previously tells us as much. There was no lodging for them. There was no room for them. God entered the world in human form as a helpless baby boy born into a poor homeless family in this strange, unfamiliar city. Revolutionary. And, and I think there's part of each of us probably that, that can identify with that story. Like we get a little gooey inside when we think about, oh, Jesus came as a little baby. And cause, I mean, it's almost like Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights, right? If, if any of you are pagan and you watch movies like, like I do. Um, I mean, he declares that because he wins the races, he gets to the parade of the version of Jesus that he likes. Right? So he likes tiny infant Christmas Jesus. That's the Jesus he likes to pray to. Um, and maybe it's different than Ricky Bobby, but I, I think there's something about that Jesus that's approachable. We like approachable, right? We don't like big, scary, thunderbolt God, but we like kind of like tiny infant baby Jesus. Cuddly. I mean, babies are not very threatening. I mean, they can be scary, but they're not very threatening. I mean, there's really no trembling within me when I sit at the feet of a fat little baby. I I, I mean, I really don't tremble in in my shoes. Our culture, we value deeply, I think, relatability, right? That's a big thing. It's a cultural value. We want to be able to relate. We want something that's approachable. Um, This image of God is approachable. This image of God is relatable. Every single one of us, and this is cross-cultural, every single one of us has been an infant at one time. You might not remember it. But every single one of us has gone through this helpless stage of infancy. And it says something to us that this is the form in which the God of the universe decided to reveal himself into this world. Starting, as every one of us does, in the form of a little baby. And then add to that, that he was born into a family that doesn't seem to have much material means. I mean, that kind of Jesus is approachable. You and I can connect. We feel he can understand us. But here's the thing. We've got to be mindful to recognize that though this was a poor baby, that these shepherds would find lying before them. That, that's true. It, it was also so much more than just a baby. Yeah, I mean, it looked like a baby, smelled like a baby, done what a baby does. But it was so much more than a baby. There was so much more going on than what would appear to be on the surface. So in verse 12... The shepherds, they're given the sign of how they will identify the Savior, the Christ. He's going to be a little baby, wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. But this gentle, cute, nativity, serene picture, it's suddenly contrasted with the image in verse 13. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And this word host, um, this describes its military terminology. It describes an army encampment. This likely means a host, thousands of angels. And Pastor Larry talked about last week that one angel 
You encounter one angel in scripture, you're down on the ground, face on the ground, drooling. That, that's what one angel does to you. And none of us says it, because if, if you did it, your life would be transformed, right? It would blow it. Thousand, thousand of that. Yelling out, singing. I imagine the best praise worship gathering I ever. Recently, Ethnos, that was one of the best praise gatherings I've seen. That would be like a little entrance into it. Thousands of mighty, powerful angels singing at the top of their lungs. So we need to get this image of the Christmas pageant with cute, cuddly, chubby little kids with little wings that their mama sewed on their back. Saying, glow. We got to get that out of our mind. I mean, that's cute. But thousands of mighty angels worshiping at the top of their lungs, declaring glory to God in the highest. Singing that glory to God in the highest. Because their message is this. As humble as this baby sitting there in this feeding trough appears, and he just like any other baby, right? Cute, fat, chubby, as cuddly, as humble, as poor and homeless as this family looks that this child was born into, don't get it twisted. Don't be confused. You are in the presence of heavenly royalty. You will be in the presence of royalty. It might not look like it. It definitely won't smell like it. But you will be in the presence of heavenly royalty and approach accordingly. This is the king. Because our king is both humble and majestic at the same time. Full of contradictions. Both humble and majestic at the same moment. What appears to be very poor is in actuality rich beyond our earthly comprehension. What looks to you and our eyes and the shepherd's eyes, they're going to walk in there. They're going to see a baby. And all these angels, they're going to see a baby. And and they were given this message beforehand to say, yeah, you're going to see a baby, but you don't get it twisted. This is a king. This is what those thousands of angels are singing about. And in a sense, it's taken the definition of what is poor and rich and up and down, and it just flips it around. It turns it on its heads. In many ways... Um, this is indicative of much of Jesus' ministry, right? If you, if you follow Jesus through his teachings, I mean, he, redef- he redefined the nature of life. That was one of the things that confounded people because they expect teachers to say certain things. He just always taught in a way that was different. So he would flip what was up, what was down, what was in, what was out, what was inside, what was outside. He would flip it all around. And we, say, we see that in different teachings. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, for instance, Jesus says this crazy thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We hear this so much that we don't think, but he's, he's saying the exact opposite of what we would consider valuable. We don't want to be poor. I don't know any of you. I don't want to be poor. But he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they're the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or later, along similar lines, Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, where he says, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Insanity. I mean, this is insanity. I, mean, I want to park that for a second. Is, it this, is this saying that Jesus hates wealthy people? I know some like kind of more uh, militant, like, you know, like, yeah, Jesus hates rich people, right? Down with the power. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think so because there, there's a lot in the scriptures that talk about how to manage your money. And I, I'm not bright, but to be able to manage money means you've got to have money. 
I, I think, right? So if there's teachings on how you should approach your money, it assumes that you got some money to be handled. Um, so I don't think it's saying that it's better not to have money or that being financially wealthy is an evil thing. But here's the reality of the matter. Here's the reality, at least from my perspective. Um, when people like in my situation who are looking to start new churches, we call, you call them church planters, when they're scanning a, a geographic area or maybe a city or, or um, a particular area of the, a nation, um, they usually stay away from the neighborhoods that come up in demographic studies as the wealthiest. They usually, church planters, new church starters, usually do not start churches in areas that you look at the map and you see the median income. The ones that are at the highest, they usually don't start churches there. And that seems counterintuitive because common sense would be, whoa, if we reach a bunch of these really like materially wealthy people, they got a lot of money and their lives are transformed. Man, imagine how much we could do for God with that. Um, because the statistical reality is that the most financially wealthy are the least likely to go to church. That's just stats. I mean, that's, that's just numbers. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, obviously it's much more involved than I have time to dig into un- and unpack here. But maybe some of that is when someone already has everything the world tells them is important to have, sometimes it's hard to see your need for God. Sometimes when you've already owned, when you already possess what everyone tells you is what someone should have in this world, why would you need anything else? I mean, that's just, I think that's just reality. Contrast that with the other end of the spectrum. Um, when I've preached at one of our local homeless shelters in our city, and, and I'll be at their chapel service, and, and I'm talking about um, proclaiming the great love of God, especially for all of us, but especially for broken people who've lost everything in this world, people who've taken good gifts and just put it down the toilet, how God loves people like that and loves to reclaim and loves to fix. And, and I look across the room, and I see people, men sitting across each chairs, just tears running down their face, captured at the majesty of this God. Because they respond to a God who offers life to them. Let me ask you, in, in those situations, who is truly the rich person and who is the poor one? In God's lexicon, in God's dictionary, those were kind of words, they take on entirely different meanings. And, and we as his followers, we would be wise to... Uh, Adapt some of the ways we use words to label who's up and who's down, who's rich and who's poor, who's got a lot and who's got nothing. Because God, we discover, often looks at things very differently than we might. Because what good is it having everything in the world when it blinds you from recognizing your need for God? What good is it being the top 1% if you don't see that you have a need in your soul for saving? Is not the truly blessed person the one who maybe the world says is disadvantaged? Maybe the world looks at with pity, that maybe the world shakes their head, but in their poverty has been driven to a God who now calls them beloved? Isn't that rich? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And... 
you know, to just make this very practical, when we talk about poor, quote unquote poor, I think for some of us here, that would describe our material possessions. Probably if we would look at our life, we would say, you know what? I'm struggling. I, I would probably say I'm poor when it comes to what I own. And if you feel that describes you, can I invite you into a thinking? Can I invite you into a, a looking through these eyes of the kingdom to recognize that those things that the world uses to shame you, those, those ways of defining yourself that the world allows you to look down upon yourself, perhaps those could actually be the means by which you would receive the riches of God. That because you don't have as much, because you're struggling, because things have either been taken away from you or you've lost it, whether by someone's doing or by your own doing, but not having certain things. For some of us, we know that's the reality because that's our story. That's what's brought us to the foot of the Savior. To say, I need help. And God has given his rich mercy in the midst of that. And I'm not being naive. I'm not like that guy that says, oh, you know what? In the end, money doesn't matter at all. You know, Usually people who say that are ones who have money. <laughs> That's what I've learned. <laughs> people who got to struggle financially, they never say anything like that. Money's real. And we, we want to handle our money well. We, we want to grow in financial responsibility. But what I'm saying realistically is that for some of us, and I would suggest many in our city, not having much money, not having many possessions, that might actually be the reason that we seek a deeper meaning through God. Because maybe there's not much else. For others of us, quote-unquote poor, um, I mean, it may not be related to what we own, but maybe it's more a description of our spirit. Maybe poor is not about what we have in our pockets or in our accounts, but maybe it's more a description of who we are or what we're going through. Um, I mean, we talked about this all, maybe it's, I, I wish we were, I think we're a cheery church, but we're not like a happy, happy, joy, joy kind of church, right? Like we don't have like cartoon characters bouncing around and stuff like that. Um, we tend to be a little more grounded in some ways, um, but we talk about this, right? The Christmas season is not the happiest one for, for a lot of us. It's not, it's not. I mean, you're supposed to be, I guess. I mean, uh, um, you know, the world tells you you're supposed to be happy. But I, I actually think during the season, what it does, it, it, it puts this microscope on areas of your life that you feel are really lacking. And you see it that much more clearly. Because the holiday times, Christmas time in particular, says it's all about these like commercials with families sitting around a fire together. And what it does is you look at your family like, I don't got a fire and I don't got a family. (laughs) Or you see these great pictures of great meals and and, and office parties. And it reminds you, I don't have a job where I have something like that. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really lacking. Or you see these dumb like TV commercials from like these luxury car companies where, oh, what could I ask for Santa this year? And you go outside and there's like a car with a ribbon on it. Who does that? <laughs> but, but what it does is say, man, my life stinks. I got nothing. I can't even fill up the stocking. Or, or it's such a season of, you know, being with your, that, that cherished one in your life, you know, having that cuddle, one that you can cuddle with. And, and you look at your life and, man, I'm, I'm missing that. Oh, or maybe it's something you used to have and you feel like you've lost it. It's not there anymore. 
maybe, I mean, if we get into deep stuff, these holiday times, it just puts a glaring spotlight on real areas of loss that we feel in our life. Maybe we've lost a person. Maybe we've lost a dream in our life. For some of us, maybe it's just as general as you, and, and we're afraid to do this, right? Because you feel horrible, but you, you, you take that quiet moment, you just sit there and you look at your life and you think, man, 10 years ago, I thought my life would be in a much different point than it is right now. This is not what I imagined. This is not the kind of marriage I imagined. These are not the kind of kids I thought. I thought I would have kids. Uh, this is not the kind of job I thought I would be in. This is not the kind of health I thought I would have right now. This is not where I thought I would be financially. And life just feels like loss. You love these cheery Christmas sermons I do, right? I think sometimes the most difficult areas of loss are those maybe in which we feel we've had some of the blame. If we can just be real. Some of our areas of loss, we've, we've been part of it, right? Maybe we feel we contributed. Whatever you might be wrestling through, can I say this? In this season of Advent, I want to invite you to let your loss not to be something that you hide away in fear and in guilt and in shame but rather something that you bring and lay at the foot of this King Jesus who promises he can do something even with the most lost things that you consider in your life. Amen? The things that you consider are trash. The things you consider are disposable. Things you consider are lost. The people that you feel are gone. All of that really real, but that God promises he can even do something with that. That is not beyond his scope. It's what the host of angels are emphatically declaring in verse 14 here, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We need to understand here, guys, this peace is not some Coca-Cola commercial where everyone's holding hands and like rocking and saying this is peace. That's not the peace it's talking about. This is the true description of peace, not in the absence of loss and difficulty. This is not a peace saying that all the bad stuff is going to go away. All the hard stuff will not be there. This is saying that in the midst of real loss, in the midst of real difficulty, right in the middle of true chaos, you are not alone. That's what peace is. That even when there seems to be no evidence of anything good, you are not alone. God has entered the world. He is with you. How do you know? God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ himself. Advent reminds us reminds us how God accomplishes his promises to rescue and redeem a broken, rebellious creation. That being a baby, being poor, this wasn't just random window dressing. This wasn't just like a cute little idea. Uh, This was a message here. That yeah, God came in the form of human flesh. He came small and seemingly weak as a baby. I mean, without seemingly much in the family. Poor, but make no mistake. Do not lose sight of the fact that the glory and the power of this God, who is fully God and fully mighty to save. As 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus' whole message was about flipping this whole thing upside down. That the King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of all, has the right to every single thing, has the right to have every tongue. Thousands of angels worshiping him would become a tiny little baby and grow into a man who would have his life torn apart on a thing called a cross. That's revolution. 
That's Jesus. I love this quote from Augustine that describes this. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Wow. That's Jesus' story. Because in God's economy, things do not always appear to be what they truly are. It was the mark of Jesus' life all the way up to his death. Because the cross was not what it appeared to be. It appeared to be a loss. It appeared to be defeat. It appeared to be an ending of this movement. It appeared to be a strangling of what was happening. And no one knew that this was actually the way it was all going to happen. God was going to use all this. It was not what it appeared to be. And guys, in the same way, the Christian life is in many ways a paradoxical life. We got to get this. If you don't get this, you're going to drive yourself insane. The Christian life is in many ways a paradoxical life. Things do not always appear to be what they truly are. Here's the paradox of following this King Jesus. Without Jesus, you can have everything in this world, but really have nothing. Without Jesus, you can have everything in this world and really have nothing. But with Jesus, you can have nothing in this world, but truly have everything. With Jesus, you can have nothing in this world that anyone else considers valuable and truly have everything. Let's stand together. Close your eyes with me for a moment as we respond in the Lord's Supper and in singing, declaring these truths of God. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment and before we sing anything, just take a few quiet moments and stand before your Lord. And we're going to make it quiet. And I know some of us get kind of uncomfortable and quiet because you're forced to think. You have to reflect. But I'm going to ask you to do what we do in our church and not try to avoid hard things, not try to put window dressing on, not try to put a smiley face on just to make get through it. I'm going to ask you that, that in this economy of God, often in the darkness, he shines the brightest. So as you stand there before the Lord, think about your nothings. Think about your losses. What haunts you that you feel this is a loss? This is a regret. This is a shame. This is something I've feared. This haunts me in guilt. I'm afraid of being found out. I feel I've messed this up. I feel I've lost this forever. This is broken. That person's gone. Whatever it might be, can I ask you to think about that nothing and bring it to this Jesus and let him be your everything. Take those nothings, bring it to Jesus and let him be your everything. And take a quiet moment and sit on that right now. For some of us, that might feel painful. But can I encourage you that that can be a moment of healing. Sometimes in pain, God wants to speak into your life. Not to stay there in the pain, but to remind you that even in the pain, there is healing available. So take a, take a few moments right now. Just sit on that. To let the Lord remind you you're not alone.